Welcome, beautiful world, to Barbarian Noetics, the podcast dedicated to the human spirit. I'm your host, Conan Tanner. What's up, everybody? Thank you so much for joining the BNP, and welcome to part two of uh, BMP original mini sub series revisiting Fidel and the Cuban Revolution. I'm coming at you from a bright and sunny Sunday morning in South Phoenix, and we're going to get right into this podcast, which is going to take us from 1898 up to December 31st, New Year's Eve, 1958. But before we get into it, we're going to start off with a quote. This is a quote by Mao Zedong, and it's from his treatise on guerrilla warfare. These guerrilla operations must not be considered as an independent form of warfare. They are but one step in the total war, one aspect of the revolutionary struggle. They are the inevitable result of the clash between oppressor and oppressed when the latter reach the limits of their endurance. In our case, these hostilities began at a time when the people were unable to endure any more from the Japanese imperialists. Lenin, in People and Revolution, said, quote, A people's insurrection and a people's revolution are not only natural but inevitable. Unquote. We consider guerrilla operations as but one aspect of our total or mass war because they, lacking the quality of independence, are of themselves incapable of providing a solution to the struggle. Guerrilla warfare has qualities and objectives peculiar to itself. It is a weapon that a nation inferior in arms and military equipment may employ against a more powerful aggressor nation. When the invader pierces deep into the heart of the weaker country and occupies her territory in a cruel and oppressive manner, there is no doubt that conditions of terrain, climate, and society in general offer obstacles to his progress and may be used to advantage by those who oppose him. In guerrilla warfare, we turn these advantages to the purpose of resisting and defeating the enemy. During the progress of hostilities, guerrillas gradually develop into orthodox forces that may operate in conjunction with other units of the regular army. Thus, the regularly organized troops, those guerrillas who have attained that status, and those who have not reached that level of development combine to form the military power of a national revolutionary war. There can be no doubt that the ultimate result of this will be victory. Both in its development and, its, its me- and in its method of application, guerrilla warfare has certain distinctive characteristics. We first discuss the relationship of guerrilla warfare to national policy. Because ours is the resistance of a semi-colonial country against an imperialism, our hostilities must have a clearly defined political goal and firmly established political responsibilities. Our basic policy is the creation of a national united anti-Japanese front. This policy we pursue in order to gain our political goal, which is the complete emancipation of the Chinese people. There are certain fundamental steps necessary in the realization of this policy, to wit. 1. Arousing and organizing the people. 2. Achieving internal unification politically. 3. 
establishing bases. 4. Equipping forces. 5. Recovering national strength. 6. Destroying the enemy's national strength. And 7. Regaining lost territories. There is no reason to consider guerrilla warfare separately from national policy. So as we continue with this episode and continue onward in the mini-sode series uh, revisiting the Cuban Revolution, you will see that though this is obviously written by Mao and it's relating to um, China's uh, guerrilla war for independence, this is very relevant to the Cuban struggle and specifically those seven, the seven fundamental steps. Um, I'll repeat them one more time. Arousing and organizing the people, achieving internal unification politically, that's huge. Establishing bases, equipping forces, recovering national strength, destroying the enemy's national strength, and regaining lost territories. All right, so with those words of Mao and his treatise on guerrilla warfare in the, in the front of our minds, let's get into this part two of the BNP original mini-sode series, Revisiting Fidel and the Cuban Revolution. In the early hours of May 1st, 1898, events were underway all the way in Manila Bay in the Philippines that would have a tremendous effect on Cuba and the entire Caribbean. So this is the beginning of the Spanish-American War. The Spanish-American War was a very one-sided war uh, because Spain had failed to ready its army nor its navy for a distant war with the formidable power of the United States. So here we are, the early morning hours of May 1st, May Day, 1898. 
Commodore George Dewey leads a U.S. naval squadron into Manila Bay in the Philippines. He destroyed the anchored Spanish fleet in two hours before pausing the Battle of Manila Bay to order his crew a second breakfast. I mean, I got to hand it to him. That is a pretty boss move. You destroy an anchored fleet, order a second breakfast. Not a bad start to the day. In total, fewer than 10 American seamen were lost, while Spanish losses were estimated at over 370. Manila itself was occupied by U.S. troops by August. And I can't even get into the Philippine, the U.S.-Philippines thing because that's literally a whole nother mini-sud series that I'll have to do. So I'm, I'm just going to skirt that for now. We're going to see how this all relates to Cuba and the Caribbean in a second. So the elusive Spanish Caribbean fleet under Admiral Pascual Cervera was located in Santiago Harbor in Cuba by U.S. reconnaissance. An army of regular troops and volunteers under the fantastically named General William Shafter. <laughs> now that's who I want as my general. General Shafter. Give him the shaft. Including then Secretary of the Navy Theodore Roosevelt and his first volunteer cavalry, the Rough Riders. General Shafter and the Rough Riders. God, sounds like a, a C-grade porn from the 80s. Landed on the coast of Santiago, land, landed on the coast east of Santiago, and slowly advanced on the city in an effort to force Cervera's fleet out of the harbor. Cervera led his squadron out of Santiago on July 3rd, and again we're in, now we're back in Cuba, Santiago Har Harbor in Cuba. Um, so Cervera led his squadron out of Santiago on July 3rd and tried to escape westward along the coast. In the ensuing battle, all of his ships came under heavy fire from U.S. guns and were beached in a burning or sinking condition. Santiago surrendered to Shafter on July 17, thus effectively ending the brief but momentous Spanish-American War. So this brings us to the Treaty of Paris. The Treaty of Paris was the official end of the Spanish-American War and was signed on December 10, 1898. In it, Spain renounced all claim to Cuba, ceded Guam and Puerto Rico to the United States, and transferred sovereignty over the Philippines to the United States for $20 million. So the Treaty of Paris uh, was a pretty momentous thing, and I, it was a major victory for the United States, obviously a loss for Spain, but more importantly, it was a major loss to the Caribbean and the Philippines, uh, because... As we're going to find out, the Cuba had basically just achieved its, its independence under Jose Marti, uh, who was like the first OG Cuban revolutionary, and he died in battle in 1895. But by 1898, Cuba had basically won their independence. But at the same time, the end of this, the, the Spanish-American War started and ended. It wasn't much of a war, guys. It was, <laughs> it was a Spanish-American bloodbath or naval bath sea bath who knows um anyways so it's just kind of like tragic timing because now with the treaty of paris spain renounces all claim to cuba and cedes guam puerto rico and cuba to the united states and then on top of that for 20 million dollars transfers sovereignty over the philippines colonialism is a real bitch guys <laughs> like oh yeah here's 20 million dollars and we just 
like doomed you all to a, like over a century of just like bloodshed, war, and horror. I'm talking about the Philippines. But again, we're gonna have to do another whole mini-sode series on on the U.S. and the Philippines. So here we are. Um, so that brings us to the end of the Spanish-American War, and in, as far as Cuba is concerned, uh, they don't quite realize the ramifications of it at the time, but at that moment, at the signing of the Treaty of Paris, now Spain cedes all claim to Cuba to the United States. All right. In 1902, Cuba becomes like officially independent with Tomas Estrada Palma as its president. However, this thing called the Platt Amendment keeps the island under U.S. protection and, and, it's a big and, gives the U.S. the right to intervene in Cuban affairs. So, an independence, but a conditional one. So you got to wonder, is a conditional independence even truly independence? Um, I would argue, no, not really. In 1906 to 1909, um, Estrada resigns and the U.S. then occupies Cuba following a rebellion led by Jose Miguel Gomez. In 1909, Jose Miguel Gomez becomes president following elections supervised by the U.S., but is soon tarred by corruption. All right, now I'm going to spend some moment on this moment in history. 1912. The U.S. forces again return to Cuba, and this time they're helping to put down black protests against discrimination. This is called the Levantamiento Armado, Levantamiento Armado de los Independientes de Color, Armed Uprising of the Independence of Color. Now this is in 1912 in Cuba. It's also known as the Little Race War, the War of 1912 or the Twelve. I like that. 12. It was an armed conflict during 1912 in Cuba between Afro-Cuban rebels and the armed forces of Cuba and the United States. It took place mainly in the eastern region of the island where most Afro-Cubans were employed. After a widespread massacre of Afro-Cubans by the Cuban army, the intervention by the U.S. military brought an end to the rebellion in a matter of weeks. The leaders of Afro-Cuban rebels, Evaristo Estenos and Pedro Ivone, were killed during the rebellion and their political movement, the Independent Party of Color, was dissolved. Here's the background to that uh, rebellion and, and ultimate um, squashing of the rebellion. So the conditions in Cuba were poor for the black inhabitants, most of whom were employed in the sugarcane industry. Oh yeah, and um, I should say that in 1898, at the same time, obviously, that, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is that once the U.S. got control of, of Cuba and Puerto Rico, they immediately wanted to exploit the sugarcane and other in industrious capabilities of both islands. So it would be another mini-sode, which maybe I'll do, about the United States behavior in Puerto Rico and the exploitation of the, the resources of that island, um, which was grotesque, but that was also happening in Cuba. So, And um, most of those employed in the sugarcane industry, which is a brutal industry, obviously, to be a, a worker, um, were black inhabitants in Cuba. Evaristo Estonez, 
Estenos led a movement to better these conditions, which had begun in 1895 during the War for Independence from Spain. Now, this is, he's talking about Cuba's War for Independence from Spain, led by OG revolutionary Jose Marti, who fell in battle in 1895, but whose forces eventually, essentially won in 1898. Again, there was those mitigating circumstances of, of um, the Spanish-American War. So veterans of that War of Independence from Spain, primarily officers, organized the Independent Party of Color in 1908. Under the leadership of Esteños, the party quickly gained the support of a large number of Afro-Cubans in opposition to Cuban President José Miguel Gómez. Gómez ordered the party disbanded under the Morúa Law, which outlawed political parties based on race. Damn, that's cold. By 1912, the Independent Party of Color had regrouped to stage another armed rebellion. In early 1912, the United States government sent a detachment of 688 U U.S. Marines, officers, and enlisted men to Guantanamo Naval Base, our favorite spot. Remember when Barack Obama promised he was going to close Guantanamo? And then he made like some half-assed effort to do so, and then was like, um, actually no, actually, uh... Actually, we're not going to close Guantanamo and fuck off and, and fuck you all, and I'm the worst person in history. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a fan of Barack. I, the reason why is because I feel like more than anyone else, Barack really crushed like the spirit of, of Americans. I was in Chicago when he got that, his inaugural night, his election, um, in 2008. And there was like... You know, I grew up just north of Chicago. I spent a lot of time in the city. And I'd never felt, like, a sense of unity and hopefulness like I did that night. You had, like, folks of all different walks of life, you know, all different ethnicities, all different classes. You had the police walking with, like, you know, the people. And everyone was happy and really felt, like, hopeful that maybe this was going to be a big difference. And Obama ran, you know, on, like, ending the wars. He kind of was, like, a, a faux populist. Um, he was going to close Guantanamo. You know, he, he seemed like a righteous guy. And the thing is, at that point, he hadn't really, he didn't have too much of a record. You know, he was still a relatively young politician. So it was, like, you know, one of the, hope, one of the most hopeless things about the Biden candidacy is, like, we know what Joe Biden is. Like, he has a very, very long record. He's been in politics forever. And he's essentially a Republican. He's like Republican light. Although, honestly, I would argue when it comes to like the carceral state, he's re Republican heavy. But anyways, getting sidetracked. Um, but yeah, anyway, so, you know, people got their hopes up. They got engaged in politics. And then Barack Obama just basically gave everyone the finger and, and told everyone to fuck off and, you know, did like this giveaway to the insurance industry and did not do anything to quell the... Uh, police violence in Occupy Wall Street, did not make any statement of solidarity with the protesters in Occupy Wall Street, and of course bailed out, did the first bailout in 2008-2009, which before this recent coronavirus bailout, that was the biggest transfer of wealth from the working class to the 1% in history. That was under Barack Obama. He set that precedent. So anyways, um, getting getting all excited here, guys. <laughs> It's because this is I'm doing an early morning recording here, and I had a really good night's sleep, so I am raring to go. All right, back to early 1912. 
when the U.S. Uh, United States government sent a detachment of 688 U.S. Marines, officers, and enlisted men to Guantanamo Naval Base, while Estenos and his followers were preparing an armed rebellion. Though they were lightly armed, the rebels numbered several hundred men, mainly peasants. On 20 May, excuse me, on 20 May, Estenos and his men confronted the Cuban army. Fighting took place mainly in Oriente province, where most African Cubans lived. While there were also a few minor outbreaks of violence in the West, particularly in Las Villas province. Initially, the rebels were successful in engaging the Cuban forces, which is pretty amazing considering these are basically peasants, lightly armed peasants, going against like the Cuban army. But on 23 May, President Gomez requested aid from U.S. President William H. Taft, who sent additional Marines. So the Cuban army was losing, guys. <laughs> like these, this, this army of, of peasants, lightly armed peasants, um, the, uh, the independent party of color were, were defeating the Cuban army. And then they had to call in the heavies in the form of William Taft and his Marines. The first reinforcements arrived on 28 May, landing at Deer Point, Guantanamo Bay, to link up with Major Thorpe's battalion. Colonel Lincoln Carmony was in command of this new force. Great names back then. Lincoln Carmony designated the 1st Provisional Regiment of Marines. It numbered 32 officers and 777 enlisted men. It's a fairly sizable contingent. The 2nd Provisional Regiment of Marines, with 1,292 officers and men under Colonel James E. Mahoney, was also en route. So the U.S. was sent 2,000 Marines and officers, guys. It's fucking crazy. Most arrived at Guantanamo Bay on 7 June, while one battalion was landed at Havana on 10 June. The USS Mississippi landed her detachment at El Cuero on 19 June. Of the 1,292 men who landed at Guantanamo, only one battalion was deployed. Colonel Carmony took command of all the unassigned troops. Together, the American forces in Cuba totaled 2,789 officers and men and were organized into the 1st Provisional Marine Brigade. About half of them were sent to occupy towns and cities in eastern Cuba. This is a major operation. Like, this is, this is no joke. The rest remained at the naval base. In June, Estenos, which is the leader of the rebels, rapidly began losing control of his territory to the Cuban military, obviously backed up by the U.S., which was dispersing large bands of the rebels and bystanders. Rebel forces had once numbered at least 3,000 men, but by June there were an estimated 1,800 left alive, although some sources cite 6,000 exterminated. Hmm, so there's some confusion with the numbers there. The Marines were assigned to protect the American-owned sugarcane plantations and their associated properties, as well as copper mines, railroads, and trains. Does this sound familiar? So the U.S. military was there to protect uh, American corporate interests in the sugarcane sugar plantations, associated properties, as well as the copper mines, railroads, and trains. The Afro-Cubans attacked the Marines only once at El Cuero, but were repulsed without casualties on either side. So they probably 
they engaged, uh, you know, they, they realized that these were like a different uh, caliber of soldier with different, we- different caliber of weapons, probably than what they were dealing with with the Cuban army. So they dispersed uh, without casualties on either side. President Gomez offered amnesty to any of the rebels who surrendered by 22 June, but Estenos continued to fight with a few hundred men, though most of the rebels did surrender. By the end of June, the majority had returned to their homes. Estenos was killed by government forces who shot him in the back of the head at execution style, damn, at Maraca on 27 June. Estenos' death splintered the rebel army into small factions which were soon defeated. The most important faction was that of Pedro Ivone, who led his forces into the mountains to wage a guerrilla war, but he was driven out by the middle of July. Ivone surrendered, but was killed, reportedly while, quote, trying to escape. Following Ivone's surrender, Gomez announced that the American Marines were no longer needed, and they began to withdraw first to the naval base at Guantanamo and then to stations in the United States. The last Marines to leave Cuba embarked on the USS Prairie on 2 August. The Afro-Cubans suffered between 3,000 and 6,000 casualties, both combatants and non-combatants, and the results of the rebellion were disastrous. The Independent Party of Color was dissolved and conditions in Cuba remained unchanged. So that ha- that all happened in 1912, and that was a that was a very serious rebellion, uh, which was having success until the William Taft sent shit ton of Marines, and the rebellion was put down. All right, so this brings us up to 1924, where Gerardo Machado institutes vigor- vigorous measures in Cuba, uh, including mining, agriculture, and public works but subsequently establishing a brutal dictatorship. So that's Gerardo Machado. In 1925, the Socialist Party was founded, which formed the basis of the Communist Party. On August 13, 1926, in Biran, Cuba, Fidel Castro is born. Born in Biran, in the Oriente province, Castro was the illegitimate son of Angel Castro y Arguis, a wealthy farmer and landowner, and his mistress, Lina Ruz Gonzalez. First educated by a tutor in Santiago de, de Cuba, Fidel Castro then attended two boarding schools before being sent to El Colegio de Belén, a school run by Jesuits in Havana. When he was only 13, Fidel organized a workers' strike against his father on his father's own sugarcane plantation. He was upset that his dad wasn't paying the workers more, and he organized a workers' strike against his own father. So it kind of shows even when he was just 13 years old, he had that, had that kind of uh, political mentality and uh, the kind of socialist mentality. In 1945, Fidel began studying law at the University of Havana, where he first became politically conscious. I would disagree with that. I think he was politically conscious way before that. He obviously was. He started a strike when he was 13. Anyway, he began studying law at the University of Havana in 1945, becoming a staunch anti-imperialist and critic of United States involvement in the Caribbean. Involved in student politics, he was affiliated to Eduardo Chibas, and his Partido Ortodoxo, 
achieving publicity as a vocal critic of the pro-U.S. administration of Ramon Grau and his Partido Autentico. Immersed in the university's violent gang culture, in 1947 he took part in a quashed attempt to overthrow the military junta of Rafael Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. Returning to student protests, Castro was involved with violent demonstrations in which protesters clashed with riot police, at which he became increasingly left-wing in his views. Traveling to Bogota, I never know how to pronounce this, Bogota, Bogota, Bogota. Traveling to Bogota, Colombia, he fought for the liberals in the Bogotazo before returning to Havana. And hold on, I'm going to tell you guys right now what the, the Bogotazo was. El Bogotazo refers to the massive riots that followed the assassination in Bogota, Bogota, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> but for some reason that city is very hard for me to pronounce, um, of liberal leader and presidential candidate Jorge Eliezer Gaitan on 9 April 1948 during the government of President Mariano Ospina Perez. The 40-hour riot left much of downtown Bogota destroyed. The aftershock of Gaitan's murder continued extending through the countryside and escalated a period of violence which had begun 18 years before in 1930 and was triggered by the fall of the Conservative Party from government and the rise of the Liberals. In 1946, presidential elections brought the downfall of Liberals, allowing Conservative Mariano Ospina Perez to win the presidency. The struggle for power both again triggered a period Oh, the struggle for power between both again triggered a period in the history of Colombia known as La Violencia that lasted until approximately 1958, from which the civil conflict that continues to this day grew. So Fidel Castro took place in that Bogotazo, which was the, uh, I'm sorry, I said 40, it's a t it was a 10-hour riot, 10-hour, 10 10-hour 10 riot uh, that left much of downtown Bogota destroyed. Um, all right. And it was, the riot was the result of the assassination of a liberal leader in Colombia. All right, so let's get back here now. That's the Bogotazo. So then uh, Fidel returned to Havana, uh, where he embraced Marxism fully after the Bogotazo. In 1948, he married the wealthy Mirta Diaz-Balar, and in September 1941, their son Fidelito was born. Obtaining his doctorate law of law in September 1950, he co-opened an unsuccessful law firm before entering parliamentary politics as a Partido Ortodoxo candidate. When General Fulgencia Batista launched a coup and overthrew the elected presidency, Castro brought legal challenges against him, but as this proved ineffective, he began to think of other ways to oust Batista. So that's just like a little teaser for... Um, the birth of a man who would end up defining uh, defining the whole Cuban kind of zeitgeist for the later half of the 20th century, as well as impacting the rest of the Caribbean, being a thorn in the side of the United States, and also um, directly affecting and helping revolutionary movements in Africa against apartheid. So... Fidel is now in the world. In 1933, Machado, who was the, the dictator at that time, 
was overthrown in a coup led by another important figure, Sergeant Fulgencio Batista. So Fulgencio Batista was a U.S.-backed leader who was eventually toppled by Fidel. In 1933, Batista led a military coup against Machado, known as the Sergeant's Revolt. In 1952, he led a second coup. In 1954, he became president. And then in 1959, he's overthrown. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back to the timeline. In 1934, the U.S. abandons its right to intervene in Cuba's internal affairs, revises Cuba's sugar quota, and changes tariffs to favor Cuba. In 1944, Batista retires and is succeeded by the civilian Ramon Grau San Martin. In 1952, Batista seizes power again and presides over an impressive and corrupt regime. So this brings us to 1953, which is not 1959, <laughs> but it's a very important year because this is the year that Fidel Castro uh, first attempts to lead a revolt against Batista's regime. And this is Castro's failed coup in 1953. So here's the background for that. Moncada was the second largest military garrison in Cuba. Although Castro's assault failed, it earned him recognition as a leader of the opposition against Cuban dictator Fulgencio Batista. On March 10, 1952, Cubans had awakened to the news that Fulgencio Batista, a former president and a candidate with little hope of victory in, the, in an upcoming presidential election, had taken over the government by force, of course supported by the United States and their coup engineers in the State Department. Batista's coup d'etat shattered Cuba's fragile democracy and the political aspirations of a young lawyer named Fidel Castro. Castro had been running for Congress as member of a political party called El Partido Ortodoxo. Most Cubans were stunned, but at the University of Havana, traditionally a political hotbed, conspiracies abounded. Castro himself began preparing an armed revolt. Quote, one night, he was at the steps of the university. No money, no work, and he does not know what to do. And that's when he decides to attack the Moncado barracks. Unquote. That's from Plot in the Making by Norberto Fuentes. Castro persuaded university student leaders to provide him with machine guns and some ammunition. So, like, <laughs> they don't fuck around. The student protesters don't fuck around in Cuba, man. Um... It's very different from the kind of like tepid, you know, marches in Washington that I participated in at the University of Maryland. <laughs> so Castro persuaded, they weren't tepid, they were really fantastic, they were amazing protests and they were way underreported by the news. And there was a huge movement against the Iraq war, um, but it was, we didn't have machine guns. <laughs> All right, so Castro persuaded university students to provide him with machine guns and some ammunition they kept for emergencies and safely hid them at his sister's home in Havana. Painstakingly, and this is where he starts to show this ability where he can, he, he's just incredible at, at gaining supporters and gathering people together. Uh, he's really remarkable at that. Painstakingly, he began to gather supporters, 200 young Cubans in one year, all members of Partido Ortodoxo. On the evening of July 24, 1953, 
Fidel's men and two women boarded two buses and left Havana for Santiago de Cuba with the excuse of attending the carnival revels then in full swing. The group gathered at a farm near Sibonay Beach, 20 minutes from the city. There, Castro informed them, for the first time, of the details of his plan. It was ultimately suicidal. Approximately 150 young attackers, including Castro's brother Raul, armed mostly with 22 caliber hunting rifles and, a few, and the few weapons Castro had earlier retrieved from the university, would assault the Moncada barracks, the main provincial garrison of Batista's armed forces. I mean, that doesn't sound... <laughs> 150 students with 22 caliber hunting rifles and they're going after the, the main provincial garrison of Batista's armed forces and take over the adjacent Palace of Justice, a nearby hospital and a radio station. They would proclaim a manifesto, a return to democracy and the ideals of opposition politician Eduardo Chibas. Castro's goal was to rouse the people to insurgency, hoping that the army would join the people and force Batista from power. Even if it failed, Fidel noted, it would be heroic and have symbolic value. So, at dawn on 5 a.m. on July 26, 1953, a caravan left the farm at Siboney Beach and slowly made its way toward Mancada. At the head was Fidel Castro and his second-in-command, Abel Santa Maria. Santa Maria's sister, Heidi, followed in the second car with her boyfriend, Boris de la Coloma, who wore a new pair of two-tone shoes for the occasion. Fidel Castro's car arrived first. Batista's soldiers opened fire. Outnumbered and facing superior firepower, the, the rebels stood no chance. Eight of the attackers were killed on the spot. Another 12 were wounded. More than 70 were taken prisoner, including Raul Castro. The detainees were brutally tortured and some even murdered, including Haiti's boyfriend Boris and her brother Abel. Haiti was taken prisoner, her brother's eye brought to her in prison. I mean, Batista is a pretty fucked up dude. Castro himself did manage to escape and he hid at a farm in the Sierra Maestra mountains. One week later, after gaining assurances that he would not be killed or tortured, that he would get a fair trial, Castro arranged to surrender at the home of a peasant near Santiago. There are several versions of subsequent events. Castro's own account recalls a sergeant approaching him with a gun, but sparing his life with the words, ideas are not to be murdered. In reality, the sergeant was simply following orders. Castro's life had been guaranteed by Santiago's Catholic Archbishop, Monsignor Perez Serantes. And this is interesting that, at the, after his first failed uh, coup attempt, that Castro's life was guaranteed by a Catholic Archbishop, because as we'll get to in later minisodes, uh, Cuba had a very complicated, the Cuban Revolution, I should say, had a very complicated relationship with Catholicism and Catholic priests. And... Uh, Catholic priests in Miami did some really, really fucked up stuff later. But anyways, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, but it, it should not be forgotten that in 1953, after he straight up attacked the main military barracks, that his life was guaranteed by Santiago's Catholic Archbishop, Monsignor 
Perez Serantes. According to the testimony of Castro's best friend, Alfredo Chino Esquival, Perez Serantes' own intervention had been assured through the efforts of Castro's socially connected wife, Mirta Diaz Balar, and a family member with influence as a close friend of Batista. So there were people pulling strings, basically, to save, um, save Fidel's life here in 1953. And imagine if he had been killed outright back then, we'd have a completely different history here in this hemisphere. So it's very, it's wild. In Havana, other student leaders accused Castro of irresponsibility and cowardice, but he didn't much care. At his trial the following September, the young lawyer, speaking in his own defense, called for the overthrow of Fulgencio Batista. I just want to reiterate, Castro at his trial, he, he defended himself. He represented himself because he was a lawyer at that time. He called for the overthrow of Fulgencio Batista and for reforms to make Cuba a more just society. All of Cuba, said Melba Hernandez, who'd sewn the uniforms Castro, Castro had, Castro, who'd sewn the uniforms for Castro and the attackers, had its eye on the trial and on its dynamic defendant. Fidel readily admitted to leading the Moncada attack and dramatically pronounced, "You may condemn me. History will absolve me." His judges handed down a stiff sentence: fifteen years in prison. Castro was sent to the island of Pines, off Cuba's southwest coast, to serve his sentence. Moncada was a wake-up call to the Cuban people, according to Professor Marifeli Perez Stable. Dialogue had failed, violence seemed the only alternative. No one quite knew what to do about Batista, and Fidel pointed the way, armed struggle, recalls Uber Matos, who became a rebel commander. Every year since the triumph of Castro's revolution, the storming of Moncada would be remembered as the first shot fired in the struggle against Fulgencio Batista. All right, y'all, I'm going to take a quick break and rest my voice, and we're going to get right back in here, uh, starting off with All right, y'all, we are back and we're picking up here. It's 1953. Uh, Fidel's first revolt against Batista failed, uh, his attempted assault of the Mancado barracks. 
and um, his brother Raul was captured and tortured, uh, but was eventually um, he didn't he survived at least. And then Fidel had escaped into the mountains, but came down and uh, to face justice and defended himself in a trial and admitted that he led the assault against the Mankato barracks. And so the judge handed down a sentence of 15 years in prison. So imagine at this point, you know, if, if you told someone like, oh yeah, this is the same guy that in six years is going to, you know, stage a successful communist revolution of the country, they'd be like, are you crazy? He's, he's a disgraced, uh, well, not disgraced, but he just got convicted of leading a revolt. He's going to be in jail for the next 15 years. But what happened was, so here's a little background on that. Um, okay. In November 1954, uh, Fulgencio Batista carried out his promise to hold elections. The result was a foregone conclusion, and no serious politician was prepared to play Batista's game by standing against him. However, the run-up to the election gave Castro's supporters an opportunity to step up the campaign for an amnesty for the Moncada prisoners. Since their release from prison, Haiti Santa Maria and Melba Hernandez had been tireless in organizing demonstrations demanding an amnesty. Now, political rallies were often interrupted by shouts of Fidel! Fidel! An amnesty committee for political pr prisoners was established, including two young women who would be very important in the Castro's lives, Vilma Espin, Raul's future wife, and Celia Sanchez, Fidel's future secretary and partner. From prison, Fidel encouraged two Moncada veterans who had escaped to Mexico to return openly to Cuba, the idea being to force the government either to start another trial with all the embarrassing revelations which that would again involve, or to grant a general amnesty. So in March 1955, some members of the Cuban Congress tabled an amnesty bill. The government said it would support the bill if the Moncada prisoners undertook not to attempt any further insurrection. Sure, we won't attempt any further insurrection. Who? Us? Insurrection? Nah. Castro did not like the condition. No surprises there. All the prisoners signed a declaration rejecting it as an attempt to force them to repudiate their past actions. We shall not give up our honor as the price for our freedom. We will suffer a thousand years of imprisonment rather than humiliation. A thousand years of imprisonment rather than sacrifice our dignity. There's a quote from Fidel. Batista's attitude to the amnesty campaign was one of mild irritation rather than serious worry. His position looked very comfortable. The economy was thriving uh, due to the mob, which we'll get to in a little bit. Impressive skyscrapers were filling the Savannah, Havana skyline, again, because of the mob. The United, the, the American mob, that is. Crowded casinos were making Havana the Las Vegas of Latin America, all owned and controlled by the mob, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Maurice Chevalier, Lena Horn, and Nat King Cole were among the celebrities who graced the city's famous nightclubs. Batista was good for business, and was basking in American approval. Carlos Prio, the, the elected president whom Batista had overthrown, was arrested in Miami and charged with violating the U.S. neutrality law. 
Vice President Nixon visited Havana and toasted Batista's electoral success, ignoring the fact that no opposition figures had stood against him. Next, CIA Director Alan Dulles, fresh from sacrificing a young goat and drinking the blood while making strange incantations to Moloch, oh, sorry, that's not in there, fresh from his success in overthrowing the left-wing president of government of President Arbenz in Guatemala, visited Cuba to encourage the Batista government's good work in rooting out communism. In this situation of prosperity and approval, it seemed sensible not to allow the atmosphere to be spoiled by misguided public sympathy for a few immature revolutionaries. The government therefore decided to get shot of the issue. A bill for an unconditional amnesty was approved by the Congress and signed by Batista on May and signed by Batista, and then on May 15, 1955, the prisoners were released. Emerging from jail, Cuba greeted his supporters like a conquering hero. Haiti wept with emotion, as did Lydia and Fidel's young sister, Emma. He gave press conferences and radio interviews, both on the Isle of Pines and on his return to Havana. What's up, everybody? Uh, please excuse the low drone in the background. I've got my front AC off, but my back one needs to stay on so my brain doesn't roast in my skull. So that's what that is, and uh, hopefully it's not too distracting. All right, so we left off um, that Fidel had, after the failed assault of the Moncada barracks in 1953, Fidel and uh, his band of rebels were arrested, many were tortured, um, many died in the assault, and Fidel himself spent two years in jail before a public pressure campaign led by his allies and specifically a lot of the his um, the lady female allies in the revolution really helped to get him out build that public pressure campaign and create a situation where it made more sense for Batista to gr grant a general amnesty than for not to because Batista is a politician too and he's also feeling very overconfident at this point and he figures yeah, sure, I'll let these assholes out and get some, you know, gain some uh, public support. What, what's the harm? You know, what are these little... At that, at that point, he felt very confident. He had the backing of the U.S. You know, he figured, what could these little band of rebels do? So that would end up being a decision that he would rue mightily um, just a, a few years later. So that during the two years in jail, um, Fidel was reading a lot of Marx, and he was further radicalizing himself and coming to the conclusion that, at least for Cuba, the only real solution was going to be a communist revolution. So he kind of like 
more solidified and codified his belief system as well as backed it up with the theory, the Marxist theory in jail. So in 1955, he, uh, the general amnesty is granted by Batista, thanks to Celia Sanchez and others. And uh, Fidel and Raul both go to Mexico. So they're in exile in Mexico. And then in June of 1955, uh, a very important occurrence for the revolution, Raul and Fidel meet Che Guevara in Mexico City. And uh, Che will continue to have a kind of an outsized role in the revolution, which we'll, we'll get to that, and after the revolution as well. I, I didn't quite realize how integral Che was to the Cuban revolution. You know, I, Che Guevara is an Argentinian, and you know that he eventually gets killed in Bolivia by the Bolivian police. Um, and I know that he was obviously a revolutionary, and he wanted to kind of create an entire South American revolution. Um, but in Cuba, he was very instrumental, uh, right there with, with Fidel and Raul in terms of the planning and the execution. He was a doctor. Um, from reading Fidel's book, uh, Shea was a very sensitive soul. He was, a, he was like a very solid comrade, but he was also um, not necessarily reckless, but he would he would get kind of carried away with himself and underestimate the danger of missions. So he was always kind of like a, a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants kind of guy. Uh, but in personally, he was very measured and uh, had high, high ethics, high values, and he was a really good doctor. So anyways, that's when they, Raul and Fidel meet Shea, June of 1955. And then they, so they hatch this plan in Mexico that they are going to return to Cuba and take to the mountains and lead a guerrilla resistance against Batista. Um, so keep in mind, I mean, they had just, literally just spent, Fidel had just spent two years in jail. Raul was tortured by Batista's police as well as a bunch of, of, of his other comrades were also tortured. But um, they, it doesn't even give them pause for a second. They regroup in Mexico City and make a plan to return to Cuba, um, uh, make an amphibious return to Cuba, and then take to the mountains and establish a guerrilla stronghold and lead a rebel army against Batista. That's their plan. So I'm going to take a quick uh, kind of side note here to examine two really important factors. In So we're, we're getting now towards the... The actual revolution took place on January 1st, 1959. Que lhe dá o direito de vir me cá 
What's up, everybody? We're going to get right back into this part two of revisiting Fidel and the Cuban Revolution here on the BMP. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of Barbarian Noetics is brought to you by a book by Joanna Fernandez, The Young Lords, A Radical History. Against the backdrop of America's escalating urban rebellions in the 1960s, an unexpected cohort of New York radicals unleashed a series of urban guerrilla actions against the city's racist policies and contempt for the poor. Their dramatic flair, skillful ability to link local problems to international crises, and uncompromising vision for a new society riveted the media, alarmed New York's political class, and challenged nationwide perceptions of civil rights and black power power protests. The group called itself the Young Lords. Utilizing oral histories, archival records, and an enormous cachet of political surveillance files released only after a decade-long Freedom of Information Law request and subsequent court battle, Joanna Fernandez has written the definitive account of the Young Lords, from their roots as Chicago street gang to their rise and fall as a political organization in New York. Led predominantly by poor and working-class Puerto Rican youth and consciously fashioned after the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords confronted race and class inequality and questioned American foreign policy. Their imaginative, irreverent protests and media-conscious tactics won reforms, popularized socialist ideas, and exposed U.S. mainland audiences to the country's quiet imperial project in Puerto Rico. The Young Lords were concerned with finding solutions for problems like garbage collection, the removal of lead paint from tenement walls, childcare, lack of access to medical care, and the warehousing of people who could not be employed in deindustrializing cities. In riveting style, Fernandez demonstrates how the Young Lords redefined the character of protest, the color of politics, and the cadence of popular urban culture in the age of great dreams. The Young Lords, A Radical History by Joanna Fernandez. Thank you so much for sponsoring this episode of the BMP, and now let's get back into it.
Freedom got me feeling so risky Pigs tryna shoot me and I hope they miss me I flow Mississippi, north to Chicago I am a threat, a Latino educado No un decato, a vato with vernacular I am spectacular, immigrant natural My crew is so dope, my traffic is international Don't believe the news, it is not factual My pistols in Mercedes mistaken identity False messiahs frosting fresh like that is the remedy Revolution in the pedigree of every pedestrian Illegal alien but not an extraterrestrial getting closer to that point and, and that's going to be where I, I'm not going to go into the whole, the actual military tactics of the revolution this episode. I'm going to wait for episode three to get into that because it's a big, it's a big um, topic, but we're getting closer to that point. So um, 1956, Castro, they took a ship called the Grandma and it was like a yacht that was meant for eight people and, or no, sorry, it was meant for 12 people and he piled 80 people on the yacht. To, get, to go from Mexico City to the eastern Cuba, where he was going to take to the Sierra Maestra Mountains. And uh, it, so this trip was supposed to take five days, and it took seven days, and they ran, like, really low on rations and shit. I mean, a boat that's meant for 12 was loaded down with 80, uh, but no one died. They, they did make the passage, but damn, that's a... Uh, wouldn't want to be on that. And apparently after the first couple days, they met choppy seas, and um, everyone got seasick, or half, half the people got seasick so imagine a small yacht meant for 12 there's 80 people on there and 40 of them are seasick um that was not i imagine not an enjoyable sea voyage at all so but the so these two factors that i want to get into now uh, the the couple years leading up to the actual revolution itself are the role of women in the cuban revolution which were very very significant um fidel was was just downright progressive when it came to um, you know, uh, gender rights and equality for women, e egalitarianism amongst the sexes. Fidel was just downright progressive for, for that time, for 1956. And even still to this day, he just, he had a really good attitude about it. And we're going to get into some of the people, there, there's like this trope about Fidel that he was homophobic. That's not true. Um, there 
were some regrettable things that happened like with homosexual folks in the revolution, which we'll get to that. But it was not that Fidel was like this homophobic person. It was more like circumstances got away from him. And um, he later on in his the book I'm reading, he was 80 years old when he recited it. So towards the end of his life. And he he readily acknowledges that he wishes he had done a better job kind of you know, there's just a lot, a lot on his plate, and um, some of the treatment of homosexuals kind of f- slipped under the cracks underneath his notice, um, and he does feel bad about that. But he himself was not a homophobic person, and he always included LGBTQ. I don't think they called it LGBTQ back in 1959, but he always included um, gay and lesbian folks in the revolution in the in the the plan for the revolution and the egalitarian nature of the revolution. He always included those folks. They were never excluded in the Cuban revolution intentionally. All right. So first, the role of women in the Cuban revolution. So we're going to go back a little, little bit here for some context. During the U.S.-backed dictatorship of Fulgencio Batista, Cubans faced illiteracy, unemployment, sexism, racism, and exploitation. Hunger and malnutrition were widespread. Many Cuban women were forced into prostitution just to feed their families. Peasant women found themselves economically tied to the land they farmed, which was mainly owned by the U.S. corporations that dominated the Cuban economy. In letters to a friend, the first female combatant, Celia Sanchez, wrote, quote, U.S. businesses owned 90% of Cuba's mines, 80% of its public utilities. 50% of its railways, 40% of its sugar production, and 25% of its bank deposits, end quote. American mafia controlled and owned every casino. Most hotels and the sex industry in Havana were also American mafia controlled. According to Celia Sanchez, thousands of children were kidnapped and sold into the sex trade to lure rich U.S. pedophiles. Under these horrific conditions, it's no wonder thousands of Cuban women joined the guerrilla troops when Fidel Castro started to challenge Batista's authority in 1953. Women were, quote, selling war bonds and producing rebel uniforms, taking part in propaganda work, participating in action and sabotage units in the cities, transporting arms and fighting in the mountains, asserts Randall, sorry, asserts Margaret Randall, author of Women in Cuba 20 years later. Because it is proven that not only our men fight, but also our women fight in Cuba, the best proof is the Mariana Grajales platoon that distinguished itself so well in numerous battles. Sorry, this is a quote from Fidel Castro. I forgot to tell you that. Let me start over again. This is Fidel. Quote, Because it is proven that not only our men fight, but also our women fight in Cuba, the best proof is the Mariana Grajales platoon that distinguished itself so well in numerous battles. And women are as excellent soldiers as the best of our male soldiers. I wanted to demonstrate that women could be just as good at being soldiers, and that, though many prejudices existed relative to women, that women comprised a sector of our country that needed to be redeemed, because they are the victim of discrimination in the workplace and in many other aspects of life. So we organized the women's units, and these proved that women could fight, And when the men fight in a village and the women can fight alongside them, such villages are impregnable, and the women of such villages cannot be defeated. 
There's also a little um, anecdote from from Fidel's uh, the book he recited when he was 80 um, in was it Fidel My Life something like that. I'll put I'll put it in the description. Anyways, so he's he was asked his interviewer asked him like was there any resentment about having incorporating women into the guerrilla movement amongst other male guerrillas? And Fidel said that yes, um, because there you know was, tr- was traditionally a lot of machismo culture in in the Cuban culture. And he, he maintains that that's something that they've been chipping away at over time. And he feels that Cuba is now one of the most kind of progressive when it comes to uh, equality of the sexes um, countries in Latin America and the Caribbean. But there was a lot of machismo in the culture, so there was resentment. And the, the, the kind of like the favored gun, favored weapon to have in the mountains because it was light but powerful, easily mobile, was the M1. And Fidel was not like joking when he said he really respected the woman fighters and he really like genuinely saw that they were just as good, if not better than the men. Uh, he found that women were more disciplined and more emotionally mature than men, which I think I think we can all attest to that, uh, gen- you know, generally. So he gave the women priorities for the M1s and some of the men got upset with this and they said like, why do the women get the M1s? Why don't we get them? And Fidel said to them, I'll tell you why. Women are better soldiers. <laughs> so that, that shut up the, the resentment. So following the triumph of the Cuban Revolution, women grew stronger under the Federación Mujer Cubanas, FMC, an organization headed by revolutionary Vilma Espin until her death in 2007. The Federation of Cuban Women was created to educate women on their continuing role in the revolution, which continued to flourish. The FMC was deeply involved in fighting illiteracy and was essential to the literacy campaign of 1961, when 100,000 student teachers, most of them teenage girls, spread out across the country to teach a million people to read and write. The FMC also worked in developing access to healthcare and eliminating prostitution. Fidel Castro proclaimed in a speech in 1966 that, quote, this phenomenon of women's participation in the revolution was a revolution within the revolution. The revolution is occurring among the women of our country. Um, now, that super successful literacy campaign of 1961 that I mentioned, uh, that was the topic of the 60 Minutes hit piece that Bernie Sanders was subjected to right after he had dominated Nevada, but right before Jim Clyburn, Big Pharma sellout, uh, endorsed Big Pharma doofus Biden. And uh, then there was like a three day, no, it was like a week, week long, something like that, just like billions of dollars of free uh, news airtime dedicated to how Bernie was not electable and Joe Biden was the guy. And then in the midst of that, they ran the 60-minute interview with, with Bernie where Bernie said, like, yeah, I don't agree with everything that Fidel did, um, but I do think his literacy program was good. And that became, like, fucking front-page news. Like, how dare he defend dictators, blah, blah, blah. And then Jim Clyburn, that fucking douche, was like, I think that's an unforced error talking about Fidel. Like, what an asshole. Anyway, sorry. I've, I've, got, I've got issues with Jim Clyburn. <laughs> Um, Anyway, so I digress. So that's women in the revolution. Now we're going to look at the role of uh, the American mafia, the mob, um, 
mostly before the revolution, obviously. That's when they had pretty much absolute control of Havana. When Batista, which was a U.S. puppet dictator, was in charge, he gave the mob mafia like carte blanche. And of course, there was obviously a lot of uh, interpenetration and cross-pollination between the mafia and the government, obviously, you know, still is to this day. So, here we go. When Fidel Castro, his brother Raul, Che Guevara, and 79 other Cuban rebels piled into the 43-foot yacht Granma on November 25, 1956, there was no indication it would transform geopolitics in the Western Hemisphere for decades, or that it would lead to the end of the mob's reign in Cuba. After arriving in Playa Las Coloradas in southeast Cuba, Castro and his men made their way to the Sierra Maestra mountain range. The Cuban army attacked them, and only a handful of rebels were able to make it into the safety of the mountains. That was a disastrous attack for Fidel's people, and Fidel himself barely survived. He describes it as one of the most intense and stressful episodes of his entire life, where uh, the whole rebel, the the 80 rebels were dispersed. They They were being strafed by planes, machine guns, and he had to hide underneath chopped down cane, like dig himself almost into the dirt to because they were flying like recon and strafing missions across the field. And they flew for like hours and hours. He had to wait there until it got dark. And they he he could like they were firing and he felt like machine gun bullets just like a few yards away, strafing and stuff. So he did survive, but he and um he said at that moment when when night finally fell and he was able to kind of get out of that cane field and and get back to the mountains it was only him and two other people together and he says that that was like kind of like the most challenging moment of the revolution because he was down to three people and one gun (laughs) at that point and he knew he had to you know and he eventually was able to reconvene with some of the rebels who weren't killed in that attack but this is like right off the bat so it's not a very it's again another kind of devastating blow to the campaign and again it shows just the power of Fidel Castro's will that he is able to see through all of these I mean disasters really like uh, they were making their way into the mountains they'd just come from the Grand Ma this ship voyage where which was like sounds like it was pretty hellish and they're trying just to make it to the up to the mountains just to establish their base but the Cuban army had caught wind of their landfall and and attacked them, and it was a very successful attack, and Fidel barely survived. To Cuban President Fulgencio Batista, it was a victory. To the Castro brothers, however, it was a minor setback. To the thousands of U.S. tourists staying in the Havana hotels and the mobbed-up owners of the establishments, it was not even a blip on their radar. By the time Castro and his 26th of July movement made significant inroads, and hang on just a sec, let me tell you what the... 26th of July movement is because we're going to be hearing a lot about that. The 26th of July movement, Spanish, Movimiento Doceses, I think, de Julio, was a Cuban vanguard revolutionary organization and later a political party led by Fidel Castro. The movement's name commemorates its 26th July 1953 attack on the army barracks on Santiago de Cuba in an attempt to start the, start the overthrowing of the dictator, Fulgencio Batista. Fidel Castro's left-wing nationalist ideology was founded in the liberal ideas of José Martí. And again, José Martí was the 
OG Cuban revolutionary who was died on in battle in 1895, three years before the Cubans would establish independence against Spain, the same year that then they would be, Spain would cede Cuba to the U.S. This is considered one of the most important organizations among the Cuban Revolution. At the end of 1956, Castro established a guerrilla base in the Sierra Maestra. This base defeated the troops of Batista on December 31, 1958, setting into motion the Cuban Revolution and installing a government led by Manuel Urrutia Lleo. The movement fought the Batista regime on both rural and urban fronts. The movement's main objectives were distribution of land to peasants, nationalization of public services, industrialization, honest election, and large-scale education reform. That doesn't sound too bad. I'll, I'll repeat again the, the, the main objectives of the 26th of July movement. Dis distribution of land to peasants, nationalization of public services, industrialization, honest elections, and large-scale education reform. All right. So, by the time Castro and his 26th of July movement made significant inroads, the mobs hold in Havana was at an all-time high. Lavish casinos and new hotels such as Meyer Lansky's Riviera and the Havana Hilton were hosting plane loads of American tourists. Nightlife in Cuba attra attracted top talent. Cabaret shows at nightclubs such as the glamorous Tropicana. <laughs> Back when the Tropicana was glamorous. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it that anymore. And burlesque shows at the much less glamorous Shanghai Theater entertained almost to the break of dawn. One of the big reasons many mob figures did not pay much attention to the gains made by Castro and his men was that they had provided arms and support for Castro. To them, it was a good business decision. They felt they could do business with whomever was in charge. They apparently didn't recognize a significant distinction between Batista and Castro. So that was a major misjudgment by the mob. And um, then it gets to the very end, which I'm, I'm not going to rush ahead. But anyway, so yeah, so that was kind of the mob's role um, in Havana and in Cuba before the revolution. And it was not a good role. And the Cubans had no agency um, and they were just being exploited. And especially the women um, were being really like horrifically exploited. So I'm going to take a quick break. All right, we'll be right back. Need for beef. 
dying over streets we don't even own anyway You could get bucked off any day, we behind enemy lines Y'all still writing Hennessy rhyme, while I'm trying to get a good price for a nine Feel like my life on the line, that's why a nigga be hype all the time Ready for the revolution at the drop of a dime I got a duty to have security for my niggas My duty to serve the beautiful black sisters A duty to stand with anybody that's with us And fully criticize all bullshitters There should be awards presented to niggas who fight back like panther jackets Her sisters who like gats I'm a full-blooded warrior, ready for change Recognize any soldier that's doing the same Because I love who I am, and that means everything to me My life ain't worth a damn unless I'm dealing with reality When I look myself in the eyes, it's just me And I ain't gotta tell nobody no lies, I feel free And I would rather deal with the truth and falsehood Than being fake with my people and claiming it's all good You can't run away from yourself, so that's useless If your word is born, then you don't have to make excuses Every time I look around, I see so much drama going on Every time I look around I see so much fakeness As I sin, contemplate about the fate of my kids If I die, is the state going to snatch up my kids? City life, no choice but to live by the knife Put food on the table at whatever the price My beautiful wife, all the time cooking precise When there ain't no meat, she bless you with the eggs and the rice Never think twice, I love you for the rest of my life That's why I taught you how to shoot when situations get trite Save the children from the evil like we smell in the air Used to be a happy nigga, now the feeling is red I'm a soldier in the struggle, just trying to prepare Cause when a revolution comes, it ain't gonna be Yo, it's the beat, the death press, we connect like texture How we coming at the world on some Malcolm X shit So turn it up so we can try these gems quick If you want some bullshit, the nigga hit the X Cause there's enough cash, grass, and ass here for you and me You wanna be free, saying fuck the community Watch out, cause life's gonna change very soon You see, I really don't believe we could ever have unity This shit is serious, we all tryna have a milli stash But love life, cause that's all a nigga really has Love your fam, cause that's all you really have And handle your business Stop being a silly ass hey, Yo, it's getting, it's getting, it's getting kinda hectic burn, so naturally thugs learn to stay vested You need to learn to psycho lesson And treat others the same way you wanna be respected All right, everybody, welcome back uh, This is gonna be the final portion of this part two of Revisiting Fidel and we've already looked at the role of women in the Cuban Revolution, and we've looked at the role of the American Mafia in kind of fomenting and exploiting pre-revolution Cuba. Now I want to look at how Fidel actually built the guerrilla army, and more specifically, the role that workers, peasants, and students played in the Cuban Revolution. So from the low point, when they had just returned from Mexico City and immediately got attacked on their way to the mountains, Fidel was cowering underneath a chopped down cane and it was only him and two other comrades. So he says at that point there was only three of us and one weapon uh, that made up the entire rebel army, but he never wavered in his, in his mission. And then eventually the force that, that overthrew Batista and fanned out across the island to, to win the, the revolution was a 9,000 um, rebel army. So it went from, from three people cowering under a chopped down cane to a 9,000 strong, um, well-trained, well-armed guerrilla army. And that only happened in about two years. So how did that happen? Um, 
and we're going to look at that and the role of workers, peasants, and students in making that happen. So I'm going to a little bit of contextual stuff again. Um, some of it is going to be repeated from earlier, but I think it's still good to to recontextualize everything. Workers, peasants, and students played an active role before, during, and after the insurrection that destroyed the brutal and corrupt Fulgencio Batista dictatorship in January of 1959. Batista seized power in a coup in March 1952. The coup initially met little resistance. The Confederation of Cuban Workers, CTC, called a general strike in protest of the coup, but the corrupt CTC leadership soon called it off. CTC leader Eusebio Mujal became one of Batista's closest collaborators, helping to suppress opposition to the dictatorship within the unions. And that's something I'm noticing a lot, actually, is that the, oftentimes the union leadership is corrupt or compromised, and it's actually the rank-and-file union members that need to be reached. And that's what happened in the Nevada, caucus, uh, the, the Nevada caucus of the Democratic primary. There was a, The Bernie campaign was extremely well organized in reaching the rank-and-file union members of the strip uh, casinos. But the leaders actually tried to, like, kneecap Bernie right before. I don't know if you guys remember that, but they were saying, like, Bernie's going to take away our health care which is, was completely dis disingenuous because the healthcare, the Medicare for all that Bernie was going to push for, he, first off, he wasn't going to force anyone to, to change if they didn't want to. So if a specific union ended up having better healthcare than what Medicare for all provided, he specifically said that they'd be able to keep that healthcare. Secondly, his Medicare for all plan would be better than like 95% of the current uh, uh, health care plans for rank and file union members. So it was totally disingenuous. But what ended up happening, happening in Nevada was that the rank-and-file members ended up overwhelmingly supporting Bernie and, and basically winning, playing a huge role in him winning the Nevada caucus while the leaders were against him. So I find this happens often. It's the whole power corrupts thing and who knows what else, infiltrators within the union uh, bureaucracy, who knows. But um, you can't... Uh, you can't like just listen to a union leader and assume that they're speaking for the whole union. In fact, it's oftentimes the opposite. Students held numerous rallies and demonstrations throughout the years of Batista's dictatorship. In January 1953, a student, Ruben Batista, was fatally wounded by police at a demonstration. His funeral became a large militant demonstration against the regime. Fidel Castro formed an underground revolutionary group and led an attack on the Mancata barracks on July 26, 1953, with the aim of sparking a nationwide insurrection that would overthrow Batista's regime. But the rebels were quickly defeated. Many were murdered by the army and police, while others, including Castro, were captured and jailed. And tortured, they don't mention that. Raul was tortured, as well as others. History will absolve me. Castro used his defense speech at his trial to explain the goals for which he was fighting. The speech, later published under the title, History Will Absolve Me, outlined his program, which included political democracy, land reform, and nationalization of U.S.-owned utilities. While Castro was in prison, his supporters outside defied Batista's repressive laws by clandestinely distributing tens of thousands of copies of the speech. They built a mass movement demanding freedom for all political prisoners. Fidel Castro and his comrades were freed under an amnesty in May 1955. 
Castro immediately set to work creating a new revolutionary organization, the 26th, the July 26th movement, which we've looked at. And then in July, Castro went to Mexico. He and his followers carried out military training in preparation for a return to Cuba to overthrow the dictatorship. In Cuba, the July 26th movement was built as an underground organization throughout the country. Armando Hart, a key leader of this work, said by December 1956, there was no municipality or corner of the island without its underground leadership and cell. The movement published an illegal newspaper. That's super dope. The January 26th movement's perspective was to build up towards a general strike and popular insurrection. So that was their, their ultimate goal, was general strike and popular insurrection. Muhal's control of the trade union, he's the corrupt trade uh, the union leader, Muhal's control of the trade union movement made it difficult for the January 26th movement to build a strong base in the unions. Nevertheless, the J26M, that's the shorthand for um, July 26th movement, the J26M participated in strike action and strike solidarity where possible. In September 1955, there were a series of bank strikes led by opponents of Batista, including J26M member Enrique Hart, who was arrested and kept in prison until the strikes were over. In December, there was a strike of over 200,000 sugar workers in protest at a government move to reduce their wages. Strike leaders included members of the J26M and the Popular Socialist Party, which was the pro-Moscow Communist Party of Cuba. The strike received broad solidarity, including from students. A number of towns were taken over by the strikers and supporters. Almost all economic activity in these towns was paralyzed, and Batista was forced to concede to the strikers' demands. Fidel Castro and 81 supporters set sail for Cuba on November 24, 1956, in the yacht Grandma. They reached the Cuban coast on December 2 and began a guerrilla struggle. The J26M continued to build a strong urban underground network. This network sent supplies, money, and recruits for the guerrillas, carried out propaganda in the cities, organized strikes and protests, and carried out acts of sabotage and armed attacks on Batista's police and army in urban areas. General Strike There were two unsuccessful attempts at a nationwide general strike before the victorious strike of January 1959. In July of 1957, Frank Pais, the leader of the J26M Urban Underground in Santiago, was murdered by the police. This triggered a spontaneous strike in the city. All stores in Santiago closed in protest. Tens of thousands marched to the cemetery during the funeral. That was the start of a powerful strike movement throughout Oriente province. However, attempts to spread the strikes across Cuba had only limited success. Oriente province, again, is kind of like the working-class stronghold, the eastern part of the island. The J26M called a general strike for August 5, 1957. The strike was largely ineffective in Havana, though electrical plant workers, telephone workers, bank employees, and several bus lines did go on strike. The J26M called another general strike in April of 1958. This strike also failed in Havana. The failure of this strike showed that the J26M on its own did not have sufficient organized support in the working class to call a nationwide strike. The J26M had called the strike without consulting other organizations, most importantly the PSP, 
which many J26M activists distrusted because of its Stalinist politics. Thus, the PSP opposed the strike, saying it was premature. Following the failure, failure of the April 1958 strike, the J26M changed its policy and began trying to work with the PSP in preparing for a new general strike. The PSP agreed to work with the J26M. In the meantime, the guerrilla struggle continued in the countryside, where it won significant support from impoverished peasants, for whom the revolution meant land and better conditions. For Castro and Che Guevara, the Argentinian-born revolutionary who had joined the Cuban struggle, guerrilla warfare was not counterposed to urban mass struggle. Rather, the guerrilla struggle, by weakening Batista's army, would help prepare the conditions for a successful general strike. By the end of 1958, the guerrilla forces controlled much of the country and were advancing on Havana. I'm not going to go farther there with the actual revolution itself, but I wanted to give more of uh, some background on how, how the force was, was um, created and, and how recruits were brought in and how the peasants in the countryside and workers in the city were integrated. It was all kind of, I guess what I'm trying to get at is that it was all one organic process. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like just Fidel. It wasn't just the workers' strikes. It wasn't just the, the J26M movement. It was all of these different forces working together. And eventually, before the successful strike and successful revolution, the Stalinist wing of the Cuban uh, Communist Party joined with the J26M. And that's really where they that that was like the final piece of the puzzle is the two the two different leftist wings who had been kind of bickering amongst each other um which as we all know that's like death knell for any sort of political movement start having infighting and actually that's one of the main uh strategies of government infiltrators is to create internal dissent that's like the number one thing so if you're ever at like a meeting like some sort of like you know anti-war meeting or whatever and you you know they're trying to achieve everything by consensus and you notice there's one individual who just keeps bringing up like points of really like minute and insignificant points of contention and just won't let the consensus move forward um that person is possibly an infiltrator <laughs> i'm just saying um all right hang on just a second here All right, so this is the final little portion of the second piece here. This is all the lead-up to the successful revolution on January 1st of 1959. This is going to look at more of uh, Batista's, uh, Fulgencio Batista's situation in these years leading up to his overthrow and the role of his police and army in um, really, really pushing Cubans to the revolution. So the purge of the officer corps contri contributed to the inability of the Cuban army to successfully combat Castro and his guerrillas. Batista's police responded to increasing popular unrest by torturing and killing young men in the cities. However, his army was ineffective against the rebels based in the Sierra Maestra and Escambre Mountains. Another possible explanation for the failure to crush the rebellion was offered by author Carlos Alberto Montaner. Quote, Batista does not finish Fidel out of greed. His is a government of thieves. To have this small guerrilla band in the mountains is to his advantage, so that he can order special defense expenditures that they can then steal. Unquote. Batista's rule became increasingly unpopular among the population, and the Soviet Union began to secretly support Castro. 
Some of Batista's generals also criticized him in later years, saying that Batista's excessive interference in his general's military plans to defeat the rebels hampered army morale and rendered all operations ineffective. It is clear that counter-terror became the strategy of the Batista government. It has been estimated that perhaps as many as 20,000 civilians were killed. This was, this was a bad dude. In an effort to gather information about Castro's army, Batista's secret police pulled in people for questioning. Many innocent people were tortured by Batista's police, while suspects, including youth, were publicly executed as a warning to others who were considering joining the insurgency. Additionally, hundreds of mangled bodies were left hanging from lampposts or dumped in the streets in a grotesque variation of the Spanish colonial practice of public executions. The brutal behavior backfired and increased support for the guerrillas. In 1958, 45 organizations signed an open letter supporting the 20, July 26 movement, among them national bodies representing lawyers, architects, dentists, accountants, and social workers. Castro, who had originally relied on the support of the poor, was now gaining and gaining the backing of the influential middle classes. It's huge. The United States supplied Batista with planes, ships, tanks, and the latest technology such as napalm, which he used against the insurgency. However, in March of 1958, the U.S. announced it would stop selling arms to the Cuban government. Soon after, the U.S. imposed an arms embargo, further weakening the government's position, although landowners and others who benefited from the government continued to support Batista. At this point, too, when the U.S. Um, withhold, or, or stops selling arms to Batista's government, the CIA is beginning to send out feelers to, to see if they can work with Fidel at this point. They, they see which way the wind is blowing, basically. The CIA and the State Department does. Elections were scheduled for June 1958 as required by the Constitution, but were delayed until November 1958, when Castro and the revolutionaries called for a general strike and placed several bombs in civilian areas of the country. Three main candidates ran in the elections. Carlos Marquez Sterling of the Party of the Free People, former President Ramon Grau San Martin of the Cuban Revolutionary Party Authentic, and Andres Rivera Aguera of the government coalition. According to Carles Marquez Sterling, all three were threatened by Castro, and several assassination attempts were made on both Ramon Grau San Martin and Carlos Marquez Sterling. On election day, estimates on the turnout ranged from 30 to 50 percent in the areas where voting took place, which did not include parts of Las Villas and Oriente, which were controlled by Castro. Marquez Sterling also stated that the initial results were favorable to him, but the military ordered the counting to stop as they changed the actual ballots for fraudulent ones. However, Grau San Martin, as he had previously done in the 1954 elections, withdrew his candidacy within a few hours of the election day. Batista declared Rivero Aguero the winner. On December 11, 1958, U.S. Ambassador Earl Smith visited Batista at his hacienda, Caquine. There, Smith informed him that the United States could no longer support his government. Batista asked if he could go to his house in Daytona Beach. The ambassador denied the request and suggested that he seek asylum in Spain instead. On December 31, 1958, at a New Year's Eve party, 
Batista told his cabinet and top officials that he was leaving the country. After seven years, Batista knew his presidency was over, and he fled the island in the early morning. At 3 a.m. on January 1, 1959, Batista boarded a plane at Camp Colombia with 40 of his supporters and immediate family members and flew to Ciudad Trujillo in the Dominican Republic. A second plane flew out of Havana later in the night, carrying ministers, officers, and the governor of Havana. Batista took along a personal fortune of more than $300 million that he had amassed through grift and payoffs. Critics accused Batista and his supporters of taking as much as $700 million in fine art and cash with them as they fled into exile. So that was another aspect that uh, went right the, the night before the revolution. Batista takes off with $300 million of his personal fortune, which really belonged to the Cuban people, and $700 million in fine art and cash that definitely basically looted the treasury. So that was another obstacle that uh, Fidel and the Cuban Revolution was going to have to overcome was their total dearth of cash. But we are going to get into that in the next portion of Revisiting Fidel. This brings us to the end of part two with Batista fleeing um, Cuba for the Dominican Republic on New Year's Eve of 1958. And we will start off on January 1st, New Year's Day, 1959, a day that will live in infamy for the people of Cuba forever. Until next time, everyone, much love. All right, y'all, thank you so much for joining us here on part two of Revisiting Fidel and the Cuban Revolution. Uh, part three will be coming soon, as well as some other exciting guests coming down the pipe, and also part three of the Conquering the Pandemic of Fear series, all coming up here on the BMP, so stay tuned. Um, if I know it's a difficult time for folks, but if you do have a steady source of income, I could really use uh, your financial support over at Patreon www.patreon.com slash noetics and you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month you can cancel at any time and you get uh, special bonus content as well when you become a patreon subscriber also throughout this uh, part two i quoted quite a bit from uh, many different sources and i've included all those sources at the bottom um, of the description of the podcast so i have the the title of the article or book and then the link where you can find it um, if you want to follow this up with your own research or you know check you keep going when whenever my quotes ended you can continue reading on about a specific subject if you'd like by checking out those links all right everyone until next time much love peace
que casa devagarinho 